Hello and welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, James Intracasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is Aaron M. Evans. Aaron is the hottest author to come to official D&D novels since a guy named Bobby Salvatore. Her books include the Godcatcher and the Brimstone Angels series. I do apologize a little bit for the sound quality of this interview. There was some scratching that happens intermittently throughout the podcast. The podcast is still totally audible, but the scratching is a little annoying, so sorry about that. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, NobleKnight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that exists online. They have any edition of any game, even out-of-print products. With Noble Knight, you can even sell back your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them, and then we'll roll the interview with Aaron. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, Noble Knight is a brick-and-mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists online. Open 24-7 on the web. They have D&D and other cool RPGs. Any edition, any game, even out-of-print products. And at a discounted price. That's out of control. Have a bunch of old game products collecting dust? Dangerous allergen. Noble Knight will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore. Looking at you, Indiana Jones RPG. So go to noblenight.com and get by it. And sell it. Take back your life. And tell them the Tone Show sent you. All right, everyone, I am here with Aaron M. Evans. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on Gamer to Gamer today. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Yeah, we couldn't miss out on, on having you. You're definitely a real-life level 30 NPC. <laughs> awesome. I'll get that on my business card. <laughs> so could you do me a favor and take us all the way back to the first time that you ever played a tabletop RPG uh, so I don't have to go all that far back. Uh, I was like 23. We had just moved out to Seattle. Me and my, um, I think he was my boyfriend at that point. He's my husband now. So somewhere in there we got engaged. <laughs> and a coworker of his, a friend of ours, um, had decided he wanted to run a D&D game for all their coworkers. It was sort of like, hey, remember this? We used to do have time to do this in high school. Let's do it now. <laughs> Um, and, and he asked if we wanted to, and I, neither of us had ever played. Mm. Um, I, it's one of those things that once I, I've started, I'm kind of like, why did nobody tell me that this was a thing you did? <laughs> um, like I was aware of it as sort of a piece of the cultural zeitgeist, but I just thought it was something that nobody really, really did. Right. Um, I didn't know people who played and who were inviting. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, since I've, I've, I've run into people I went to high school with, and they're like, oh, cool, you write D&D &D books. I loved D&D. &D. And I'm like, where were you? <laughs> um, but it's probably for the best, because I would have gotten super sucked in. I spent, already spent you know, so much of my, my teen years um, writing ridiculous novels and, and illustrating them and, and all of that great stuff. But so anyway, so our friend Sean uh, asked if we wanted to play, and, and we both said, sure, let's give it a whirl. Um, it was uh, 3.5. It was a homebrew setting. 
that I honestly I don't remember anything about. And I made <laughs> I made a neutral evil sorceress. Wow, that's um, a first yeah. character, right yeah. there. <laughs> I'm not really sure what I was what I was thinking. And part of it is I I'm not I I'm not the biggest into alignment um, mm-hmm. as a um, a kind of a guiding force like. So I, what I wanted was I wanted to play someone who was sort of selfish, right. what, what I would call Eberron evil. Um, <laughs> so like I wanted, I just wanted to play a character who had some like a like a dark side. And and this so when I was presented with the with the nine point alignment, I was like, it doesn't seem like I'd have like a dark side and be good, so I'll just be bad. And mm. and Sean was like, what are you gonna do when they figure it out? <laughs> and I had this whole big kind of sociopathic speech prepared about how I could do the things that they wouldn't let themselves do. Um, but I never really had to do it because we only played one time. Uh, there were like mm. nine of us. It was insane. There were way too many characters. <laughs> um, and I didn't understand that. I know at one point someone got an amulet of undead and I had to pass a note to the DM asking if they if that meant that they could tell that I was evil. I had become very paranoid they were going to figure out I was evil. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he's like, are you a zombie? <laughs> like, I passed you a note, write it down. Um, the best part of this game actually was my husband who's, um, he's he's the kind of person who sits down, he's much more into video games. He really doesn't like playing uh, tabletop games. He doesn't really like very open-ended things Mm -hmm. and when you give him something that's a little open-ended um like if he plays uh a game with where there's you know there's quests and stuff like that but it's a pretty open world like he's playing um like skyrim or or even something like like half life like he'll he'll wander around he'll kick the barrels he'll just want to like kind of see what the physics looks like because he's (laughs) he's really into that the programming aspect too um, you know, he's the kind of person where if he had the unlimited time, he would figure out the way to like launch your character over the mountain using this complicated set, right? So, right. <laughs> so we're walking along in our, our gigantic party. He's already kind of, kind of, I think, bugged the DM a little bit because he's, uh, you know, he said, well, "What character do you want?" And he, he's like, "I want to be an inventor." And he's like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, well, you're going to be a fighter because that's easiest." <laughs> and he's like, "But I can I be a blacksmith?" He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Okay, I invented a bicycle." And he's like, "You did not invent a bicycle." <laughs> and he joined our party. He's like, well, "Why did you come over with these people?" Because they'd already played a session. And mm-hmm. uh, he's like, "I don't know. I followed her to me." And he's like, "Because she had a, I had a monkey familiar." And <laughs> and he's like, "Because she has a monkey." And the TM looks at me, he's like, she has an 18 charisma and you're following her for the monkey. <laughs> like, I think he just thought he was making fun of it, but he was just sort of like pushing the boundary. So we're walking along the side of this swamp, like this DM's describing the scene. And my husband picks up his character sheet and he goes, I have jump. I want to jump in the swamp. <laughs> and, and the DM's like, no, that's not what that's for. And he's like, I'm just, I'm going to keep going. He's describing, he's like, I have climbed. Can I climb a tree? (laughs) DM's like, sure, you climb a tree. You look around. There's more swamp. You get back down. I think we go on and these, these lizard folk come out of the, of the swamp and we're trying to decide what to do. And I come up with this idea of, I could speak draconic. So I told the wizard how to say like, like help, help. And she used ghost sound. She was going to use ghost sound to kind of make it sound like there were lizard folk being attacked on the other side of the hill so we could get them to turn away and then we could get some advantage attacking them. Nice. But as we're doing this, my husband goes, I have ride. 
I want to ride the lizard man. <laughs> and the DM just absolutely lost it. He's like, stop it. You're not taking this seriously. <laughs> and later he felt so bad. He's like, I really wish I just let him ride the lizard man. It's just <laughs> saw how it shook out. <laughs> so even now we'll use that, that, that like if you're, you're being a goofball it's like do you want to ride the lizard man <laughs> <laughs> nice nice that's amazing so does your husband uh does he still play with you now no, no. <laughs> only if i twist his arm i got him to play my son is really really into D. Mm-hmm. um he really wants to play and so i printed out there's a, a D for kids game called heroes of hesiod and oh, I printed cool. out the adventure that's available on uh, Wizards' website. Uh, but you need to have at least four players and the DM. And um, so I couldn't just play with my son. And and I sort of said, okay, well, if you play two characters and Daddy plays two characters, we could do this. So I like mm-hmm. wrangled him in, and he's just like, Ugh. he's like, okay, I rolled this. What's your armor class? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, look at your sheet. I tried DMing once and uh, I, I made him a dwarf fighter character and there's a, they're in a tavern and, and my sister says the wrong thing to somebody and a fight breaks out and his turn comes around. He's like, I drink my beer. I'm like, you're a dwarf fighter and there's a bar fight going on and you drink your beer. Okay, this doesn't go with the backstory, but whatever, I'm going to let you do what you do. And then my brother-in-law, fortunately, was like a cleric of Paylor or something and like, gave him this inspiring speech and beat his will roll and it's like okay now you have to get up and do something and he just like it's it's funny because he he those open-ended things he gets annoyed because he feels like he has to pick out the right answer and there's still so many right answers and and he's not really he doesn't really want to do the role-playing part but i'm still convinced that i could find a way to make a game that he would really enjoy Mm-hmm. I just have to get him to sit down and do it. There's a a game called RPG Kids. Um, yeah. That uh, a pretty popular blogger named Newbie DM. His name is Enrique oh, yeah. Bertrand. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's on his website, and that's supposed to be a, a very good introduction for kids. Uh, maybe your husband would enjoy it maybe. as well. So it's funny because I was surprised in that game. Um, you know, he didn't want to do the combat particularly but then when we got to sort of a skill challenge where they had to kind of um kind of talk to this official and and get um get some information and then kind of get a quest offered to them basically and um that he actually liked kind of you know figuring out and i have no i have not figured out why that worked my dm right now uh susan morris has, has kind of we talked about dming because i'm i'm gonna actually be at game hole con and um sort of dm my first non-family game hopefully my first like truly successful game because that didn't go very well overall uh and she's talked about you know uh, for, for her a big part of dming is sort of sussing out what makes the players feel like they're shining you know what makes them feel like they're having fun and they're being sort of useful to the group and so she'll build puzzles to kind of give different players an opportunity to do something that's in their, in their wheelhouse, right. That's, that's something that they enjoy. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that that's, that's the key is like figuring out what is it that w- he would enjoy. And, and thus far I have not figured out anything <laughs> that's a part of playing a role-playing game, but, but I am not done. <laughs> <laughs> Might be, it sounds like puzzles, things that have like very linear, direct, you know, possible, solutions yeah. are, are, are his kind of thing. So. And I do think like coming, like I've played a game that um, with my family, my brother-in-law ran a game 
um, at Thanksgiving once, like for everybody. And so I kind of went around and I was sort of the, the facilitator, I guess. And, and I kind of helped my family who's, you know, like nerdy light, you know, mm-hmm. like I am definitely the, the super nerd of the family <laughs> um, and find them ways to do it. Like my, my mom, um, I made, uh, we made a, a dwarf. I think she was a fighter, a paladin mm-hmm. um, whose name was Ragnild which is the name of a Valkyrie. And my mother's family is Danish and she's very like, you know, interested in, in Norse things and, and her Danish background. And so we, we gave her this beautiful little dwarf mini to represent herself. And she was good <laughs> playing with this character who had something that she wanted to hold on to. Um, yeah. Ragnarok icebreaker. And, and, and she could use that. She could talk about basically the toy doing things. Right. Right. She was a warlord. That's right. She was a weird playing forty, and she's a warlord because I I had to explain to her what she was doing. She wasn't very into the fighting part. My mom doesn't really like violence, but we kind of said, you know, kind of showed her like, you know, you do this inspiring cry, and it's basically like you're, you know, kind of the cheerleader of this team. You're giving people a reminder like what you're in this for, and that she could kind of sister was very uncomfortable pretending to be her elf wizard, but or her Aladdin wizard, but she could kind of talk about that character in the third person and say, you know, Quilena wants to do this. Um, uh-huh. And and so like finding those things that like, like my dad played a warlock that we named Shinerbach because <laughs> he, was, he, was, he lived in Texas for a while and he was a star packed warlock because my dad is a, um, a logistician in, in aeronautics. So mm-hmm. he, he liked that sort of space touch. And then he just basically rolled Eldritch Blast every single time because it worked and he liked having a successful attack, right? He didn't want to go in for something that was splashier but not, might not work. And so that sort of feeling like, okay, you like like succeeding, you know? You like doing this and knowing you're doing it right. Okay. Um, so those like little minor things, like finding the character that you can kind of feel like, oh, this is about me. That's like, I think that's a good, good in <laughs> yeah yeah for sure <laughs> so let's talk about your career for a little bit take me all the way back to how you got started um writing what were you doing before you were entering the writing world and and how did you get involved it seems like uh writing for D was sort of your your first professional writing gig my, my mother will tell you that i've been writing stories since i was two or something that um, she knew I was going to be a writer, which I, for a long time, resisted and said, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and I think I was like 14 or 15. And I read a book I just really hated. And it was like the first time I'd ever read a book that I just quit. <laughs> and I decided I could do this better. And I, I wrote a really really terrible novel because obviously I, you can't at 14, the first time you sit down, you're not going to write a better novel, but I just got hooked. Um, so I, I just kind of didn't stop writing since then. And so I got, I got a lot of practice at not sucking. Why, um, um, why were you so resistant, uh, before that point about oh, being a writer? You know, I think a lot of it was, there's a, you know, the part of your parents tell you like, they know you best kind of thing. You're like, no, you don't. Um, but the, you know, also to me, it didn't seem, I, I kind of felt like I could do something more exciting. Um, I really wanted when I was young to be an actress. I was also really into drawing. I, I was like, that was like my pretty much constant activity. And I still, when I was started writing, it was like an alternate between, writing or drawing. I think if you, you go back and find people I went to school with, they did call me the girl with the sketchbook. Cause that's, that's what I did like constantly. Um, and so I thought I would do those things. Um, 
I mean, I don't know. I think I have some, I still probably have some art skills, but it's different because I don't like getting critiqued uh, when it comes to art. And there's something I don't, I can't wrap my head around being fresh in the same way that I feel like with writing, it's, you know, it's a part of you, but you can also sort of separate yourself from it and, and sort of take the advice of, of people who, uh, you know, your editor or, you know, other writers who can say, you know, hey, you could be doing this. Um, you you want to keep improving it. You want to keep reaching for something better. And I think that makes me a better writer than I ever was an artist. I don't like, I think acting is kind of exhausting in the end. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> it's like, that's, you really got to be in it to win it for that. Um, plus, you know, so far, like writing, the writing, writing and publishing is, 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 maddening and heartbreaking and i suspect acting is about 10 times worse mm -hmm. but at any rate yeah i just it was one of those things like my mom said i was going to do it so i was like no <laughs> um so i got i just i i wrote several terrible novels in in high school and uh i i went to college i went to college thinking i would get like a real i would i would go into something real and and sciency and and that's where i i found um i really before that i had really loved egyptology and and i i'd kind of zeroed in on that but once I went to college I was like you know the broader aspects of anthropology really grabbed me and um I kind of bounced around a couple of subfields and and I was looking into grad school but I decided to take uh some time off and my boyfriend now husband and I bought a 1983 mini Winnie uh like a little <laughs> RV and we drove around the country for nine months oh nice and I, we I read just uh, crazy numbers of books and books that that were nothing like what i would normally pick up because you go to goodwill and you could buy you know a book for a, a paperback for a quarter or you can mm -hmm. buy 10 for a dollar so you find 10 10 books um and it's not always the case that there's you know 10 fantasy novels so you buy the you know get the true crime and you get the western and you get the vampire novel and you know the romance novel and it really broadened my my reading and, and and I think that that's a big part of, of learning to write better is is sort of seeing what all these different genres and subgenres have to offer and and do well um, and and what can you sort of cobble together out of that um, when we moved to Seattle my husband's a, a software developer so um, obviously we moved to Seattle right. eventually <laughs> um, and uh, I got a job uh, a, an internship with a small press uh, called Paraspora. Um, and I uh, learned a ton about publishing. Um, I was there, we, the other intern and I read Slush, the, the sort of unsolicited manuscript. Mm -hmm. And um, we, you know, that's a, it's another thing where re reading people's writing attempts is also really good for kind of figuring yourself out. Um, it's right. also just, I don't know, I, I find it really thrilling in a way because it's so it's so brave sending your stories out to some stranger to read. Oh my gosh. And, and it's, yes. it's kind of inspiring. I mean, as much as, you know, people are like, Oh yeah, it's hilarious. Cause you get to read the really bad stuff. It's, it's also really kind of nice. Cause you just see these people who love their books enough to say, Hey, I think this could go out there and be something. And, and I don't know, maybe that's super idealistic to me, but I love it. Um, <laughs> and I was working there and I had a day job that was, uh, I was doing content management for a, like a kid science stuff. And, it was, it, it just really wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, mm. So I looked for editing jobs and I found a job with Wizards of the Coast um, and they hired me. Um, actually, they hired me on as an assistant editor. It was for originally for an editorial assistant, but they were like, she has experience and we really need more editors because they were, that was when they were publishing just 
like over a hundred books a year. It was, oh, it was sure. really quite a lot. So I did that for a while and I was, you know, working on my own fiction. Um, and I, you know, the, I got to write Forgotten Realms. I think there were sort of two things together. I had shown the Forgotten Realms editor, who Susan J. Morris, who I'm now very good friends with, um, the uh, some of my fiction, because we had, the, all the editors were saying, hey, we should start like a writing group or something. Um, and I'd shown her something I had been working on. And uh, at the same time, I'd also, there was a Ravenloft re- relaunch mm. and I'd pitched uh, a book for that, um, which they had then kind of, pulled back on it the, it did the market didn't kind of want it as much so it got canceled oh, but geez. um yeah i know it's it's the <laughs> unfortunate thing is i have this like ravenloft book idea that i love but <laughs> it it's really ravenlofty right i can't really separate the world out and ever use it right um, yeah. so she came to me and she said listen i have this uh this series coming out the ed greenwood presents Waterdeep, and they'd already done the first three books i think uh, or I think she'd already she'd already contracted the first four, and she wanted to do another set, three, four. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I get stuck on this detail. It's going to last forever. But anyway, um, so she needed to do what's called a limited call, where you ask a specific number of authors um, for a, a story pitch. Um, and you, when you do something like that, you want to have um, mm-hmm. more than you need, so that you're not just you know like if you need three and you ask for three and then you get three, you just you don't have a choice of what's the best option. So she wanted to round that out. And so she's like, I do you want to contribute an idea so that I have more, more numbers basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I pitched uh, my first book, the God catcher, right. Uh, which she and Ed Greenwood really liked. Um, but then because I worked there, she had to go through like, I think nine more pitches just to prove that this really was <laughs> one of the better options. You know, one of the ones that she liked best. She's just like, this is, I'm going to keep fighting for this. Um, which is, I think one of the wonderful things about Susan is that I know that she will never tell me something is good when it's not, <laughs> um, you know, however good our friendship is. If I ever show her something writing wise, that's not good. She will, t- she will tell me. Oh um, yeah. You need those people. You really right? do. Like it's, it's, you know, you need the cheerlead, the people who just cheerlead too. And she, you know, when it's, when it's good and I'm, I'm not feeling it, you know, she'll remind me and that's, I really appreciate that about her too. But, but yeah, you don't, you need people who are willing to tell you, nah, that sucks. <laughs> uh, so I did that there and there was a, and at this point I was editing for Eberron primarily, but also I was doing some of the, the back, the back catch up for, for Forgotten Realms. So some of the standalone novels, um, mm. because that, that was the largest line at the time. Um, and then some of the um, back-end things for Dragonlance, because the Dragonlance editor, um, Pat McGilligan, was was off-site. Uh, mm. So I would do things that had to happen in the house, like sending out to proofreaders and things. Um, so I one of the series that Susan and I were both going to edit somehow, was they were trying to shuffle it around and make sure nobody had too much to do, was called The Plain Touched. Uh, and the, that was going to be four books based on um, the four... Four, four of the the fourth edition races that were based in um, another plane. So so we had uh, the Shadow Kai book was for Julie Johnson, and then um, Samantha Henderson um, pitched a, a Deva book, um, and Christopher Rowe pitched a, a book about the Goliaths. Nice. And uh, and then we wanted a tiefling book, and and we are having trouble with finding an author who 
you know, could do it. We had a couple, I think we had two authors who we had sort of begun negotiations with and it fell apart because, you know, the schedule was off or, or the, the terms weren't what they were expecting or, or, you know, various things. Um, and then we got a lot of pitches that just really didn't feel like it was capturing, you know, what, what a tiefling character's experience would be like. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, we're playing in this game and, and she and I are both playing these tiefling characters and, and I, and I'm reading these pitches that I'm just not loving. And I'm thinking, man, I have a good story here. <laughs> and so after one of the rounds, I pulled her into a room and I said, I have to pitch this story to you. Just sit there and listen. And if you don't like it, let's just go on our merry way, but it's killing me. So I pitched her, um, what would eventually become Brimstone Angels and she really liked it. And she said, okay, let's, let me go, you know, type it up, mm-hmm. you know, type up a short pitch and I'll go, you know, talk to them about this. Um, and then in the process of that, before I ever got to the outlining stage, they came back and said, never winter is coming out. And we already have um, plans for uh, Bob's books for Bar mm-hmm. Ice Avatar's books to connect to it. But we're thinking maybe this book too, uh, because I don't know. No, I guess because they trusted me. I want to be like, oh, because I was there. But you know, I you know, let's be real. It was probably because they thought I could do it. Um, <laughs> I'm trying not to be so humble these days. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is all about you. So and it would so be a boring said, podcast if you tried not to talk about you. <laughs> so you know, then I said like the story I pitched you doesn't work anymore because oh, and then, then the other part of it was they said we're not going to do this as a as a series. Uh, the the plain touch does not. We don't want to do these standalone series anymore. We want all these standalone books to sort of be um, test, you know, feelers for extended series. So these four books come out. They're about a particular character. The ones that seem to grab people the most, the ones that you know the editors are most excited about, will extend. Will add on more books to them, and they'll keep going as long as as long as people are interested in them, right? Um, so then. You know, that's Julie Johnson's book became Unbroken Chain, and that that actually became a short series. Um, and and uh, Brimstone Angels. Then I was like, okay, well, if you want these two things, you want it set in Neverwinter, and you want it to be the beginning of a series, then the story I pitched you doesn't work. Because actually, the original story, I was sort of on the fence about whether or not Farida survived it, because I, I kind of thought if she died at the end, that would probably be the best arc. <laughs> so that wouldn't work. <laughs> that really wouldn't work. So I, I sort of started over and I, I made her younger and I, I kind of envisioned a bigger arc for her. And I, and so I ended up writing Brimstone Angels and obviously that spiraled well out of control because I'm writing the fifth book now uh, of that series. <laughs> well, and that's congratulations on that. That is wonderful. Thank you. So you said that at the time you were playing a tiefling character in a game. It was. Is Farida based on this character that you were playing? very 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 loosely i i it's one of those things it's like i say yes but but here's the story right my original character my character farina the name is the same i just i i like the name for her it felt right mm-hmm. um was a tiefling warlock but she had a fey pact um and she had a twin sister who was susan's character tamura mm. um and tamura was uh, she was some sort of martial character. We'll just say she's a fighter because I don't remember. Um, and they were, we did have them be raised by Dragonborn. We actually had this backstory that we brought to the DM who was our boss, Phil. And he, at that time, the Dragonborn really hadn't been developed at all. And, and we were like, maybe they do this and maybe they do that. He was like, this looks like Kwa- uh, Kuatoa and this looks like 
whatever or drow or something. And he's just like, you can't do these things. Right. And we're like, this isn't official. And he's like, I don't care. It's my game. These are. <laughs> so, um, so we had, we had, we did some, some revisions. Cause I think originally like my character was going to be the fighter and her character was going to be a priestess of Sunni or something. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so yeah, so this, my Farida, um, she was older. Um, she was really snarky and cynical and, um, she had made gotten in this pack because in the same way that Farida in the books gets the pack because her sister traps Lorcan, the Cambian, um, she had gotten caught this pack because her sister had trapped uh, a Bantray, which is a kind of fae. Right. And uh, she'd, the, the Bantray was basically trying to bargain with her, like, get me out of this cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he said, like, I'll give you these up. I, and and I don't remember anymore exactly the way it worked, but he basically said, I will give you these insane powers um, in exchange for your soul. And she's like, right, totally, because I have a soul. Because um, <laughs> being a tiefling, right, I, I have to believe that, that that's at least a, got a little bit of, of traction as a, as a um, you know, urban legend kind of thing. And she's sure. like, sure, whatever. I'll totally take that deal. And then, bam, right, it happens, and the Bantray's gone. <laughs> and so um, now she's like, wait, crap, I, I had a soul? So her <laughs> journey was largely, like, testing the waters with these various gods. Like, is are you someone I want to throw in with, and can you get my soul back? Because suddenly I have this thing I didn't know I had, and I care about it. And some of that, I think, bleeds over into Farida in the novels you know she's but but it's different right her soul is in it will say imperiled Mm -hmm. but it's she's never made a pact certain right she wouldn't she didn't make that kind of a deal um I I really feel like like devils that's sort of the in some way the ultimate goal but you can get a lot more uh, out of a person before you get to that step and if you jump to it and it like once you've got their soul there's nothing else you really can get from them in a lot of ways um, or, or potentially you shut it down, right? Because like, what else are you going to do? Um, right. so, you know, and she's, she starts out younger. She starts the books at 17. Um, she's quieter. She's more serious. Um, she might occasionally bust out, you know, kind of sarcastic comment, but generally <laughs> she's very, you know, kind. And, and whereas I think, I actually don't remember what my alignment was in the game, but I, I would definitely say that Farida in the books is good. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's, she's not lawful, right? <laughs> She'll definitely make, you know, a decision to do something that that's maybe not on everybody's moral compass because it, it produces the greater good. Um, and, and she's much more inclined to like, you know, run into the fray to protect someone than, than my game character necessarily was. And the, the pact is different, right? When I sat down to write a teethling book, it was like, okay, this I like the Fey pact. It's fun to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really, I, I found the Fey Wild really interesting, but it doesn't really share and, 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 and expand on uh, the tiefling background the way that the Infernal pact does. Sure. You know, she makes this deal with the Cambion sort of almost by accident. Um, mm. You know, he's, he's very good at saying all the right things sort of in the lore as far as you know anybody understands it and i always say that because i because the, the novels are really they're told from a perspective of a fallible person so there's always room to kind of embroider or or take out stuff um is that the tieflings are like this because they may you know back 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 in their history um this 
this uh, tiefling warlock made a, a deal with Asmodeus, as mm-hmm. well as Coven of tiefling warlocks made a deal with Asmodeus, which gave them you know powers, but also basically traded the blood of all the tieflings for the blood of Asmodeus, Ooh. which was kind of a meta way to explain the fourth edition changes that they <laughs> kind of already decided on. But you know, I, I this is one of my favorite parts of writing shared world fiction is that. You know, like you were, we were talking before about, um, you know, game designers really loving the crunch and the mechanics. And sometimes you get stuff and you're like, why is it like this? And it's like, well, it's because it's it's fun to play like this. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, but in the narrative of the story, like, why is it like that? And 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 then, you know, if, if you're the novelist, a lot of times you get room to kind of say, okay, well, how do you connect these two pieces? And I find that really fun. I mean, I, I really enjoy kind of, taking these things that that might might drive other people a little bonkers because they're like there's not an explanation i'm like but you can make the best explanation (laughs) Um, and i have the benefit of of being able to do that and and then it gets put in a book and then everybody reads it and it's canon and (laughs) so i'm right (laughs) (laughs) oh you know actually on that note yeah you have talked about before that you were very proud of being able to write a fourth edition style healing surge oh into gosh, one I, of I'm your just, books i'm delighted with that <laughs> <laughs> uh can you talk a little bit about that because i think you know when i sit down to write something for one of my campaigns or you know i write um tv commercials for my job uh when i sit down to do that i the parameters sometimes help you know, because yeah. it's like, oh, okay, I have to stay within these rails, but what can I do then that's new and original still with inside this, you know, it's outside the box thinking, but you're still within, like, on, on train rails, you know? How can I do that? Um, and I think writing in shared world fiction is, is a little bit like that, right? You have yeah. certain things yeah. you need to, to stay away from, and how can you connect the dots? So when you were writing that healing surge, how did you write that? And, and you know, what was your process like? And you're and you're absolutely right. Like the the thing that makes shared world writing entertaining is is having those boundaries and being able to use them. I've always likened it to writing poetry, right? Mm-hmm. And you write a poem of a sort that has a really strict form. If you fight against that form, your poem's terrible. If you kind of flow with it and you use it and you think about ways to make it interesting because of it, um, then then you can create something beautiful. But but so in the same way, you know, looking at what you have to deal with and finding sort of the holes is great. And so the healing search thing is interesting to me because I think it points out something that some people um, will cite as a problem with gaming fiction. And that is that you can get really wrapped up in the rules. And I think healing is in, in D&D is one of those things that we start to conceive of healing as you have a certain number of sort of points in you, right? Um, I have... 30 hit points and then I get hurt and the points start dropping down and then you have to get, you know, some sort of healing magic and that will pop it back up. And so when fourth edition came out and you have these healing surges that anybody can do, people are like, well, this is BS because like, how is a fighter filling up his healing points? And it's like, okay, but wait, take a step back in the real world. When you're fighting, when you're getting hurt, you don't have this like ticker that's clocking down. You know, you have other factors, right? You know, how much blood is getting to your brain? That's an important one. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you know, how much pain is it? But, but so something like pain, for example, is going to be really subjective and it's going to be something that you can use various tricks to kind of get over. So you can, you know, take a breath, you know, center yourself. That's going to be a healing surge in a way, right? That gives you a little more to get through this, right? You can, in this particular healing surge um, that I that I cited, 
uh, Lorcan, the Cambian character, has just gotten cornered by his Irene's sisters and some hell wasps who are supposed to be taking him back to face punishment. Um, and they're tougher than him, and he gets beat up really bad, and he gets, you know, by game turns, he gets bloodied. Because the thing I needed him to do, um, he could only do if he was bloodied. Mm. But so, um, then, you know, it, it's it, and in, in particular game terms, it, what happens is he's in the fight, he gets bloodied, which is basically so that I can trigger this thing that lets him escape. It, it basically launches him some somehow. <laughs> um, I, I honestly don't remember exactly what it's called or what it does. So then, the next thing I need him to do, though, is to um, put on his disguise uh, that, that he can do as a, as a can be. He can make himself look human. Mm-hmm. But the game rules specifically say you can't do this if you're bloodied. So I'm like, okay, he's going to have to do something. He's going to have to basically get a healing surge. Um, but I really didn't want it to be like, and then he pops out his healing potion or something. So what I have him do is like, he's wearing leather armor. So he just like pulls the buckles a little tighter to put pressure on his wound. And he sort of stops and sort of assesses where he's hurt. So when he lands, like he's favoring his ankle, he's off his ankle, uh-huh. you know, and, and these things are, you know, a way to sort of show someone taking care of themselves in the middle of a battle, right? Is this sort of thing, like putting pressure on your wound, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the thing with the warlord that we were talking about before, like that inspiring command or whatever it was called, um, you know, getting yourself psyched up so that that fight response is bigger, is better than, than ow, 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 ow. Right. Um, that's a sort of a real world way to look at healing because, you know, there's not, because there's not, there's not hit points in reality. Right. So like reframing that to be something that, that you can relate real world stuff to um, the, what it was meant to always meant to kind of emulate um makes I, I thought it made that really easy to write um mm-hmm. but you have to get over that like the game rules go like this because the, the game rules are trying to emulate something else right this is the, the sort of the the stage the interface if you will between these two things between what it would look like if you were really in a fantasy world really fighting a beholder <laughs> these are the these are the rules to help you kind of like uh, process that right and then if you're going to take it back out of the rules and into a narrative you can't forget that this thing is on the other side. And if you do, then you're going to get people saying, I can hear the dice roll. And you're going to get people saying, you know, it's flat and it's schlocky and, and whatever else you can throw at that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think you're right. You know, and, and when you think about hit points as beyond uh, you have to hit a guy a bunch of times, you know, hit points are exhaustion and, they're, right. you know, all that all that stuff ties into it. And I think... You know, obviously, one of the great things about writing the novel is that you really get to explore those terms and and talk about how it's done. So, uh, you know, I was a big fourth edition fan, so I I appreciate you telling people, like, (laughs) it is possible. You can write about these things in a way without hearing the dice roll like you just described. So thank you very much for that. (laughs) What is your process like um, when you sit down to write? You know, what is your, what's your normal routine when, when you sit down and when you're starting something new, when you're starting a new novel, do you outline first? Do you have a plan? Do you know every step of the way? Yeah. When I start a a new book, I I have to do an outline. That's part of um, the process for working on Forgotten Realms novels. Mm. Um, And, and I've, I've gradually gotten used to it. At first I was like, I don't want to outline. I, how am I supposed to know? Um, And I think it's helpful to think of it as this is sort of, a viable option, 
right? This is a viable option for how this book will go. Uh, and, you know, different books, I, I'll stick to it more or less. I, I, I tend to write, I've, I've come to the realization now that my sort of best way of working, my best practices mm -hmm. here is, is to write a really enormous outline. And I, I'll tell people how long my outlines are and they're just shocked. Um, you know, the current book I'm working on, Ashes of the Tyrant, is uh, the outline was, um, I think it was 20,000 words. Mm -hmm. which is like if you take a normal forgotten realms paperback um that's like not not ones that have been hard covers and then they've been resized as paperbacks but like you know like brimstone angels right you're talking about like a, a ninety thousand word novel about and so i'll write uh you know this this outline that's like a, a quarter to a third of a novel <laughs> and but for me it's like writing a really terrible first draft okay. right there's like little snips of dialogue but nobody is like in their own voice they all sound they all sound like me talking really slangy and be like <laughs> Farida's like nothing's here dude and Morgan's <laughs> like okay let's bounce and, and so it's it's really just like a stream of consciousness thing and so that I can get a feel for the flow um then you know I I I have a chance to, I have, my son is three. So I work Mondays, Tuesdays, and, and, and uh, Thursdays. Um, I, I usually can work from like nine to two pretty solidly. Um, and, and I have my mother and my sister uh, take care of him, which I'm, I'm fortunate. He's the first, the first grandchild and the first nephew. Uh. And so everybody's crazy about him. <laughs> um, and he's very cute if I do say that myself. So, uh, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I work mornings and, and I, you know, it, it, it's a lot of pressure to get stuff done. So, mm -hmm. you know, I try to make sure that I get it done, but I also, I, I'm, I'm really easily distractible. So I, I, I make use of a lot of technology to keep me on track. Like uh, I like freedom, which is a program that turns off your internet. Oh, cool. um, and I have another one when I'm drafting that works is a uh, called write or die where you turn it on and you basically have to keep writing. Uh, there's various settings, but if you stop, something bad happens. I like to use the kamikaze setting, which will start deleting your words. What? It'll warn you it's going to do it. Like it turns, starts to turn red. And if you don't get to typing, it just goes chunk, 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 and eats the words up. Oh no. <laughs> so when it starts to turn red, you're like, I don't care. I'll just write the stupid sentence because it's much easier. I find it's much easier to revise something once you know what you were kind of shooting for. And sometimes like it comes out and you're like, oh, okay, this is actually pretty good. Like I, I forgot to add these details or whatever, but, but it gets stuff out. And um, I, I tend to write a first draft. Just, I go along until I hit a point and I'm like, oh, I was totally wrong about what this character would do back in chapter four and I need to redo it. Um, and that usually happens about the, the point that my first drafts do. So I'll turn in what I've got. Um, and this has worked so far. I, I, I say this although because I like to be honest about it, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, aspiring authors out here, this is out there. This is not the way to do it. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, my editors have done enough books with me and they know like, this is, this is what works. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'll turn it in. And I basically, my, my last editor joked, I'd write my own editorial letter. Like, okay, I know there's things wrong with it. Here are the things I know are wrong with it. And here's what I plan to do about it. Um, and then, you know, she'll read it and she'll kind of say, okay, yeah, I agree with you, but no, don't do this other thing. You don't need to. And, mm -hmm. and also do this. And, um, and we'll talk about, you know, the changes and, and how the ending will change off the outline. Um, and like I said, different books, like with Brimstone Angels, like my first book, um, I, it, it didn't change dramatically off the outline. Uh, I ended up cutting back the number of points of view and I added the character of Serce, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, who ended up being really important in the series. I yeah. didn't, I didn't know I needed her. That That's the thing I tend to do is like, I get through, I get into the first draft and I'm like, something's missing. Oh, I need this character. So it's been things like Sarchi and then um, in lesser evils, uh, Adalek and Rand was not originally in that book at all. Mm-hmm. And, and that was part of the problem is like, I got into this book and then the sort of the, the villain of the book is the looming threat of Netheril which loses some tension. <laughs> and, you know, eventually once they get into the, the library and they find out what's really going on, you know, you have, have other supernatural sort of antagonists. But for that first part, it was like, there's just not a, it didn't feel like there was enough pressure. And so I added that character and then he became really important in the adversary. And then in the adversary, you know, like almost none of the, the background characters were really developed. Like, Uta and and mm-hmm. Thara was a different character entirely. The nameless one I added really late in the game. Adalik and Rand was just not doing it enough. He was creepy, right. but he wasn't really scary. He was starting to be a little bit comical. So I was like, somebody scary. Or no, I think actually it was originally supposed to be like the nameless one was this dude because <laughs> Netheril is always presented as very dude heavy, and and he wasn't. <laughs> he was just sort of like this sort of looming spooky dude, and mm-hmm. and that made Adalik and Rand seem really comical and useless and he was sort of like the, the goofy lieutenant um and i was like well what would be like scarier and i'm like you would be scarier 13 year old girl who's a child of Shar. that would be terrifying um, <laughs> you you mentioned ravenloft a little bit would you ever uh, want to write for another D setting or write outside the world of of D, maybe a different fantasy world or, or outside of fantasy oh i so i really like fantasy and i find that a lot of my ideas really trend you know come back to that um, you know if there's not something magical happening it doesn't grab me as much um you know when i was when i was in high school writing terrible novels i wrote plenty of things that weren't remotely fantasy but but it didn't again it doesn't grab me the same way i definitely you know have interest in working on um and and have you know several sort of creator owned projects of my own mm-hmm. uh progress uh I haven't, you know, got a contract and I haven't already been paid to write them. So they, they tend to, to get to sit in the background while I, while I do Farida books. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and, and I think that's, you know, that's exciting. The, the, there's a lot that I love about doing shared world and, and the way that you do, you know, world building in shared world, which is, it tends to be more on the micro level, you know, the, the little details that sort of make it feel more fleshed out. Um, but, you know, when you get to this this point um where, where i'm at you know they do give you the opportunity to do bigger things um when it came to fifth edition you know they came to me and they said can you create these documents about tieflings and dragonborn and i basically said here are all the things we've said mm-hmm. here are all the places where there's sort of a you know a discontinuity um here's the places where you could find a, a way to kind of include both the pre-spell plague and the post-spell plague. Um, and here are places where you can't, you really can't change anything. And here are all the things I think you should also do to kind of flesh it out the rest of the way. Um, which was really a lot of fun. And it was, it was nice to see some of that make it into the player's handbook. Um, and then now the book I'm working on ashes of the tyrant is set in Jared Thymar, the the capital of Thymanthor where the dragonborn are. And so, you know, I, I'll, I was coming back and saying, can I say this? Can I say this? Can I take these things out of, out of that document? And they basically said, listen, 
you're the one who cares the most about this. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing in there that we're like, no, don't touch that. So what you think is right, you do. So <laughs> that's been very fun. I've been able to do a lot more of it. But obviously, when you're working on something that's your own world and your own creation, um, you know, you have a lot more leeway to, to sort of shape, a, have the setting shape the story or the story shape, shape the setting, really. One thing about me is that I didn't I didn't read Forgotten Realms novels until I w- worked on them, and that mm-hmm. was just you know so like I said before like I, I have this gap in my fantasy experience that I I can't really explain I don't know I grew up in the Midwest I don't know if that's an explanation it, it you know it's not because I didn't want to I just didn't I didn't see them and when I did see them you know they were they felt like they were coded for someone else these are these are books for dudes kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, you know, now I know, like, there's just tons of fantastic female characters out there in <laughs> the Forgotten Realms. So, you know, I come at this not as a fan. I didn't, I wasn't one of the authors who's like, I've always wanted to write in Forgotten Realms. You know, the opportunity came to me and, you know, I embraced it and I've fallen in love with the realms. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I care about it very deeply. But um, so so I, I, I don't have other settings that I'm a fan of that I'm like, man, I would love to do a story in that. Ravenloft aside, because I do have this really kick-ass Ravenloft story. But, um <laughs> I, I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly know a lot of people who love Ravenloft and would love to to see something like that happen. So hopefully, I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed that one day we'll get the Aaron M. Evans Ravenloft story. <laughs> so I would love to read that, absolutely. Was, they were interesting, and um, I think they put two of them out. So there were two out in, in paperback, and then one went out as an ebook. But the premise was that um, rather than being set entirely in um, other property worlds that that it was people from the real world in various historical points being pulled into Ravenloft um so one of them was set in the crusade the one by Ari Marmel was set during the crusades um and Samantha Henderson wrote one called um Heaven's Bones I think oh wow uh that was about um around the time of Jack the Ripper Mm-hmm. It's about this crazy <laughs> this like crazy doctor it, was, it, it had kind of the same overtones oh wow uh, and I've completely forgotten the third one, but so so yeah. So they, it was it was this really interesting uh, twist on it, right? The, the but, because the mists can come into any world, oh, right? yeah, and take totally. anybody. That's that may be the right way into a uh, Dungeons and Dragons movie as well. Um, yeah, so, you know they should definitely consult you when they, <laughs> when they go to. It's just one man's opinion. Just one man's opinion. So let's talk about your gaming real fast. Um, what are you playing right now? So I play in a 5th edition D&D game. Uh, I play bi-monthly or monthly, depending on our schedules. Um, I play a half-elf paladin called Vidanya. Uh, I've also, my, my brother-in-law started running a, um, a Deadlands game. Oh, nice. Which we've only gotten to play once or twice. Um, just, it hasn't, hasn't totally worked out. Um, and in that I played my character who was, uh, like a, a revivalist minister called Z- Sister Verity Lee, uh-huh. um, who I kind of imagine is a young version of, um, have you ever seen Call the Midwife? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sister Monica Joan, like a younger version <laughs> of that. So like she's she's kind of bitchy and she's kind of crazy, but she's kind of prophetic, and you're not sure which one's going on right there. Um, and then I also ended up I made a character for my husband, but then he was uh, he had a work thing come up and he couldn't play, and so I was also Doctor Eric von Blaupunkt, the lunatic uh, German mad scientist. So it was a, it, it's a really fun game. It's interesting because it's very different from D and D, which is what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but and then yeah the D game is the is the more regular of the two and then my my son always wants to play D, so we have sort of a long-running D game which is me telling him a, a sort of fantasy themed story where he gets to fight monsters and find treasure and it's it's kind of a fun exercise because you can't really pause you can stall right you can kind of like this is how he became very fascinated with um what different inns can offer because i was like i don't know what happens next you go into town and there's three inns and which one do you want to stay in and this is what they have for breakfast and this is what the room looks like and uh and so, okay, let's kill some time doing that. But so he, he was playing as a character he called Issy the Tiefling Fighter. But he's also been playing a lot of Dungeon. Um, mm. And the new re-release of Dungeon, the board game, yeah. uh, Farida is actually a character. She's the female wizard character. Oh, that's and awesome. She is his favorite. He always plays Farida. <laughs> Even if he starts out as somebody, he'll like switch to Farida in the middle. Oh. So he decided he wanted to start over D&D and play as Farida. Um, but, but he kept, it's funny cause he, he kept, I, I gave him like a, an elf wizard that named Elvara because I was on the spot, uh, that went around with his tiefling fighter. So Elvara had to come too. Um, so Elvara and Farida, I think they're heading to Lurin to get a recipe from the halflings there. Oh, wow. The, the wizard in this story sends them on a lot of really bizarre, um, <laughs> You know, it's like the first one, he sent them to get a tooth from a giant frog monster. And when he brought it back, he, the, the wizard licked it. And said, it tasted like cotton candy. And he sent the cupcakes from a Yeti on top of the mountain. And he brought them back and he used it as face cream. Uh-oh. Well, like, we ah. see where the ideas for your novels are coming from now. <laughs> Have you ever wanted to, you know, step into the DM chair? I feel like as a novelist, that seems like a natural fit kind of for you. So sort of the problem, I, you know, I know a lot of people who are novelists who kind of cut their teeth DMing in a way. Um, the problem that I've had, you know, I, I, I sort of, I, I say I haven't really DMed because I kind of ran one game and, and it was for family and, and it didn't, I don't, I don't feel like it went all that well, aside from telling my son these stories. But mm-hmm. um, sort of the problem is that I'm a little bit of a control freak when it comes to the story. And there's, you know, when you're a DM, you really have to kind of like be aware of it, but sort of let it go and let the players steer, um, which is something I, I don't think I really understood until I'd done both. Um, you know, I'd, I have seen novel ideas, novel pitches come in from people who hadn't written a novel before, but who were very, uh, who were game designers or who were very into, into DMing and, and could build a world out. And the thing that always struck me is that the main character really felt more like a like kind of a camera person, right? The person who's showing you around and they weren't really, they didn't have a story of their own. Um, and, and that's something It's obviously not a problem for every game designer. There are lots of game designers who are really great novelists, you know, um, Ari Marmel and Keith Baker and, and James Wyatt and, and, and lots and lots of people who, who can do both. Um, but, but there's sort of, I think that, that once you sort of, you learn to kind of set this thing out there and then invite people into play, like it's a different process to write a novel where, where you're sort of like, and you notice this detail and then you decide to do this so that you trigger this happening. And, and you have to kind of be able to let go of that. And sort of, it's interesting that I've noticed in the game I currently play in the D and D five, the edition game, um, which is run by, by Susan Morris, who's also my editor. Um, she introduced story elements and I find myself really hesitant to, to kind of 
push my character to do the thing she'd do. Um, just for example, my character is a, is a half elf paladin of it's, and it's a homebrew world. So she's a paladin of like the God of, of like law and order and stuff. So she, and the empire, there's a, there's a big political element in this. So she, the game before the game, she woke up with this weird sword in her bed. Um, mm. And when she holds it, it, it's like, a, it looks like a dagger. And when she holds it, it turns into a long sword that glows blue. And through the course of the game, she's discovered that these soul blades are similar to ones that were wielded by this group of paladins that went crazy. And only one of them survived, the Pale Empress, who appears leading an army of zombies with like, they're all nine of the soul blades piercing her body, right? And if Vidanya, you know, uses it, that zombie, if you find, we find these, the world is like overrun with undead. So you find these zombies that have these blue gems on them. And if she holds the sword, they listen to her, right? Wow. Right. And, and like, there are these chasms that the zombies come out of and it's really crazy. And like, my character is devoted to this God who's like the paladin God. Right. And, and I know that she should like get rid of this sword, but I don't want to break this story. Right. She's obviously got a plan. (laughs) So like, I, I have a couple of times retroactively done something like, like, like I found out that from this like wizened old ranger dude, like, that the the sword won't go away. And I said, can we pretend that I threw my sword into the chasm yesterday and was like, that's done. And then I woke up and it was still there. And Susan's like, yeah, okay. But it's like, when <laughs> I thought of that before, I was like, no, no, no. Cause what if it doesn't come back? And then I lost the story, um, which is another sort of controlling <laughs> thing. Right. I, 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 I should trust that if this is important, she will make it work, but it's, it's interesting. Cause, cause it's, I'm so excited about this. I want to know how it's going to play out, but, but I'm, I'm approaching, I keep approaching it like a reader and I'm like, okay, what are you going to do? Instead of like, how am I going to, to play with this story? And it's, it's interesting because I've never had a DM really take those aspects of my character and directly tie them into, into the adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like usually I come up with a story and a backstory and it, it, you know, it matters to me when I get to some place and I decide to make my character do something. I decided to make Farida ask a priest about their god or something. Or um, I played a warforged character who thought she was, who'd been sort of brainwashed into believing she was a reincarnated halfling girl. <laughs> and and so, like, she bought a lot of hats to kind of cover up the fact she had no hair. And and if and there was some point somebody died and and there was a funeral and she couldn't cry and it really wigged her out. But like, as far as, you know, what the story was happening, it, it never came up and it never mattered. We found a creation forge at one point and the DM's like, and then you go back to the surface. I'm like, okay, we're not, not going to see what Luca thinks about that, but that's cool. Um, <laughs> so that's, it's the interesting thing about this is, is that sort of figuring out like how you relate to the story and how you can best relate to the story. Um, they're, they're actually really different and, and uh, it's, it's worth appreciating that, you know, but like I said, I, um, I'm going to be at game hole con next, next fall. So I, I kind of have to figure out how to do that, <laughs> but I have some time to practice. So, well, and it's, you know, I think actually con, uh, while it can be exhausting depending on if you're going back to back and how long you're doing it and that sort of thing. The nice thing about it is the, the, pressure is off because everybody doesn't really know everybody that well and um you know it's one time you know if if it's a terrible experience you'll never see these people again uh (laughs) so uh, then there's this part it's like am i am i damaging my brand if i'm a terrible dm people are are people gonna go oh i don't want to buy her books (laughs) (laughs) what'll happen is people will go and they will be happy that they got to play a game with Aaron (laughs) and that's really that's gonna that 
should take all the pressure away because that <laughs> is the way people are going to feel. Just, tell your listeners, don't sign up for my games if you if you want like a really rigorous D and D experience. It will it will probably be a lot of me giggling and uh, and and making up stuff on the fly. <laughs> right. So, listeners, if you want to have fun at a game, make sure you sign up for Aaron Evans' game at Game Con. So, <laughs> uh, Aaron, what is coming up for you? What what kind of things do you have uh, in the pipeline right now? Uh, well, I'm working on my fifth Farida book, uh, which is called Ashes of the Tyrant. It's not going to come out until next fall, so you have plenty of time to catch up on the other four books. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth one, Fire in the Blood, just came out. Um, if you've been following The Sundering, um, it, it's uh, the book after Adversary, and it delves into what's going on in Cormier more deeply. It, it's a uh, if you're into Cormier at all, you you need to read this book because mm-hmm. it will it sets up basically how the forest kingdom looks um in fifth edition mm. i don't know it's one of those things is that I, I i see a lot of people reading it and i i'm kind of like where where are all the crazy you know the, the like crazy fans right the people who really love this talking about like okay now it looks like that um so you know read it get excited or get mad or something but you should see it uh <laughs> i'm really happy with it and, and um and and some sort of hints toward what's what's happening in the hells, mm-hmm. uh, but it's I, I it's I really love the book and it it's uh, I, I think everybody should read it because I, I I frequently finish a book and I'm like oh it's fine it's not that great because because I'm from the Midwest uh, but this one I'm I, I'm really proud of and I'm, I don't mind saying it uh, so yeah so that's that's the the big things coming up for me um, and. And my plans to be at, I'll be at Game Holcon next fall and um, Gen Con this summer and, and uh, World Con as well. If, if people are interested in, in getting a book signed or just saying hi. So Aaron, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I have a blog that I keep sporadically on uh, slushlush.com. So I am on Twitter as Aaron M. Evans, uh, and I'm on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook author page, I think, is called Brimstone Angels. Um, that's that's where I interact with readers more. Uh, and, I, and I have a Tumblr, but I don't know what to do with it yet. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on Gamer to Gamer today. We appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. Thank you for having me. Anytime. All right, people, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can go to the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world that I'm building. It's a worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Aaron M. Evans for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner and everyone at The Tome Show. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Remember, never give up. Life is a game. Eventually, you gotta roll a 20.